This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. talk a little bit about whiskey bourbon specifically i mean put bourbon in a headline and jason and i are sold. all in on this sold well also <laughs> under the byline sean donnan come on i know double sold uh bourbon and scotch makers funny a common enemy in tariff sean donnan wrote it he's our senior trade reporter at bloomberg news he's joining us right now from our 991 studio in washington dc his story by the way featured in the current issue of bloomberg markets magazine nice to have you here sean tell us about this story this is like us complaining that we have to go to miami to come the Super Bowl. You had to talk this about is a whiskey. Tough assignment, Donna. It's Donnie. tough. It, this is a hardship posting. Is it too early for an old, for an old fashioned? Uh, uh, never, never, never too early. Never five too early. Five o'clock somewhere. Don Draper <laughs> would certainly say no. But the uh, uh, yeah, look, I, I think one of the things we we uh, we try to do uh, on the trade beat is go out and find examples that kind of help us understand how these trade wars are working and whether they make sense and so on. And if you look at the whiskey industry, it's really interesting. In, in, in some ways, it's a story of about place, right? Uh, bourbon is Kentucky. It's about limestone water there. It's about American white oak barrels. Uh, it's about Jim Beam and the kind of storied history and the myth of these places. Uh, at the same time, uh, you have the same thing with scotch, right? Scotch is all about peat and that kind of smoky flavor that you get from the earth in, in Scotland and the kind of damp summers in, in, uh, in, in the highlands and, uh, and the coastlines and the islands of uh, of Scotland, and and th- these are these are places that are full of identity, and yet these are it's actually both of these places are part of a kind of really globalized industry, and that's where the tariffs uh, kind of hit, and and that's what's really interesting here. Both the EU in 2018 started hitting bourbon uh, with tariffs, and uh, last year the the uh, Trump administration announced new tariffs on scotch uh, as part of right. a push uh, to uh, re- uh, get back at the EU over some subsidies uh, that it gives Airbus and so on. So tar- tariffs have hit the, the whiskey industry, and yet it is this industry in, that is totally globalized, and therefore this doesn't make sense, because those bourbon brands are often owned by other people, like Jim Beam nowadays right. is owned by Japan Suntory, and right. scotch uh, brands are often owned by American bourbon makers and so on. Well, and Sean, as you very well point out in this story, it's a global industry, but this has very local consequences. And you went to some of these places. What does it look like uh, on the ground? Yeah, so if the bourbon industry right now is in a bit of a boom, and that's thanks to things like Mad Men and Don Draper's uh, love of the of the amber uh, fluid. Uh, I'd like to think I contributed to it. Sean, you, just you'd like personally. to, yeah, but and, and but part of that is also. Um, you know, they really are. What we've seen is artisanal whiskey makers yeah. take off in places like Kentucky. So it's not just the big brands like Jim Beam. We've, we're getting them moving into a lot of uh, kind of niche spots, and they're looking for new ways to do business. And part of the doing that, uh, part of that new way of doing business is looking at uh, techniques that are used elsewhere, like in Scotland, and turning to things like sherry casks and Armagnac casks and all of these different things. Uh, 
what the industry is really worried about, though, is that uh, these tariffs are going to shut down one of its biggest markets in Europe. And likewise, for the Scotch industry, they're really worried that uh, the U.S. tariffs are going to shut down its market in the U.S. Sean, I love this line. I kind of want to have T-shirts made. Maybe we'll get the guys from yesterday to make Shirt these T-shirts. A whiskey barrel is almost always either from somewhere else or headed someplace else. I mean, I feel like that, in a nutshell, tells you what the industry is about, and that's why it's impacted by uh, certainly trade disputes or trade concerns. Yeah. So one of the things, one of the ways the industry is globalized is the role of bourbon barrels. Uh, one of the quirks of the American whiskey industry is that in 1964, Congress mandated that all bourbon had to come through brand new virgin barrels uh, made out of American oak. And uh, that means that every year there are millions of barrels that the bourbon industry has to get rid of. Well, for decades now, they've been shipping a lot of those barrels off to Scotland and to places like Japan and even India and Burma, uh, where you have whiskey makers who are using these barrels. And that means that there's a little bit of bourbon in everything. (laughs) And so where does the business go from here? I mean, are these companies making specific decisions that are based off of tariffs and based off of these trade wars? Yeah, so one of the things we're, first of all, the industry tried to get ahead of the tariffs, right. and that meant shipping uh, kind of bulk uh, containers full of, of whiskey uh, off to Europe to get ahead of the European tariffs in 2018, and doing a lot more bottling at the, on the ground there. Um, but they're also, uh, you know, mainly the thing that they're doing is kind of banding together, and we're seeing the scotch and bourbon industries mount a joint effort to lobby uh, both Boris Johnson, the prime minister in the UK after Brexit to lift the tariff on bourbon and uh, for Donald Trump to lift the tariff on scotch, pointing out very simply that these are global industries. Just got about 30 seconds, so lesson learned. Whiskey's good. But it's, um, besides that, Sean. Besides that, look, I mean, I think the answer is it's it's like all of the things in trade and, and these trade wars is you start thinking a little bit about where something's from and you learn a lot. Uh, and it just isn't that easy. It uh, really, even things with incredible local identities have real uh, complex global provenance. All right. Well, and we should point out uh, that this is part of a really great package in Bloomberg Markets Magazine. We're going to be talking about it, sort of teeing it up as the stories go through. And not for nothing, the USMCA, USMCA, as Carol likes to call it, it's going to be signed, scheduled to be signed tomorrow. We'll see who gets invited to that ceremony. Maybe we'll talk about Sean Donnan a little bit more uh, as the week goes on. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. So let's head out to Los Angeles now. Mark Gurman is there, a tech reporter for Bloomberg. All things Apple. It's a big day. We're excited to spend some time with him ahead of the news, the earnings news, because there's other things we need to be concerned about with Apple. So, Mark, tell us about the supply chain. Yeah, I mean, it's good to spend some time with you, you two as well. Um, coronavirus is what, everything, what everyone's talking about. And if any company, just like the, the trade war the past year or two, is going to be impacted by this, it's Apple, right? They do everything in China. The whole company is run out of China in terms of getting their devices manufactured and, and shipped around the world. And so the supply chain right now is just bracing for disruption from coronavirus. There doesn't seem to be any possibility that they won't be at least a little bit impacted over this. But so far, not. But it's hard to imagine how they could not be. Right, Mark? Right. There is going to to be impact, but Mm. Apple's going to be able to very likely offset it pretty quickly. 
Um, I spoke to someone uh, at Apple, a longtime supply chain executive there yesterday, and what they told me was special measures were put in place because of incidents like this back in 2011, if you remember the big tsunami right. uh, and earthquake in Japan. And so what that did is it really disrupted the launch of the iPad 2 back in March 2011. That was a really key product for them, and they had a lot of constraints. They couldn't ship enough of them for several months because this hurricane in Japan, sorry, not hurricane, tsunami in Japan, hit, hit the company's suppliers so hard. So what they do now is they dual source all major components, not only meaning they have multiple suppliers, but they have multiple suppliers in multiple geographies. So let's say one you know, supplier in China goes down because of this virus. Well, then they have a backup perhaps in, in Vietnam or, or elsewhere that's able to step in. So the impact will be there, but they'll be able to offset it because of these measures they've had in place for several years now. Well, and Mark, I have to think that companies like Apple, led by Apple in many ways, have been thinking a lot about their supply chain, even outside of exogenous events like this, but even as it relates to trade, I, I think this is something we've talked to you about before, that companies just have to be so much more thoughtful, as it were, about making sure they're not too concentrated in one country or geography. Yeah, and you know Apple is is doing a lot to sort of offset those worries as well. I mean, they have manufacturing facilities for key products all over the world, and they have so much money, right? I mean, let's talk about end of world scenario right now where they it's just not possible. Not this would ever happen, but I'm sure there's a plan B in, in place in case you know China's completely shut down. Just goes offline, right? Right. China just goes offline with 200 billion dollars in cash you can set up a factory somewhere else. For well, sure. And it's interesting. I do think, Mark, so often when we think of Apple, we do think of how much production is done in China specifically, right? There's been great stories. You're reporting about all the work that's been done. But I do feel it, it was interesting to you for you to hear from you about how they have different facilities around the world. And I do wonder if they're increasingly going to diversify that supply chain because of you know what we've experienced with the U.S.-China trade war over the last couple of years. Yeah, our understanding is they're doing more outside of China, whether that's Vietnam, whether that's Japan, and those are sort of the, the immediate plan B scenarios. But I should say there's probably plan C, D, right. and F through the whole alphabet, even as far as going you know, to the U.S. if they need to, right? Apple has a fiduciary responsibility to get this done, get this thing working, uh, regardless of anything going on in the world. And, you know optimistically, if any company has those, you know, backup plans, it's, it's for sure right. Apple. All right. Well, we have a journalistic responsibility to ask you because we have you on the line, Mark. Sure. Tell us about earnings. You know, all eyes there, investors obviously enthusiastic ahead of the report. What's the key thing you're going to be looking for when the numbers roll out? The key thing is the performance of iPhone sales. I think uh, a year ago when we were having this conversation, the iPhone sales had cratered to right. re be reduced by 15%. So anything significantly better than a 15% negative is a good thing. Uh, I would I would bet that it's either up 2% or down 2%, something in that you know 4% window. And I think that's what investors and analysts are looking for as well. And so anything in that range is a good thing for Apple today. All right. Good to know. And we'll keep an eye on that. And certainly uh, stock often moves on uh, that report. Mark Gurman, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate your reporting. As always, tech reporter at Bloomberg News from our bureau in L.A. All right. So, Carol, I at least throw around the term existential crisis a lot. But if there is one industry that has been in a state of existential crisis for the past few years, 
It's hedge funds. Totally. Let's be honest. Exactly. People getting in and out of the business, converting to fees. family offices, investors uh, breathing down their necks. No one knows it better. Literally, no one knows it better than Kathy Burton, hedge fund reporter, wrote the book on the industry. She's got a really great story out, and she's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, along with Joel Weber. He knows a lot of things, too. Uh, he's the editor. Few compared to business. Kathy. Few, exactly. We all pale. Uh, so, KB, tell us about what's going on. So, macro funds, they're cool again? They're making some money, at least a little bit? Well, some of them are making a little bit of money. Others are not. Yeah. Uh, but there is, for the first time, a bit of hope. There were a handful of funds that were up 10, 20, some almost 30%. Which is saying something because, I mean, this was the strategy forever in hedge funds, and it has been a bit of a desert for a while. That's exactly right. It, it really what is what started the hedge fund industry. Like back in the 90s when it was like sort of, a, you know, very the cool kids exactly. who had some secret potion and stuff. This was that strategy, right? Exactly. I mean, it was the world of George Soros, Paul Tudor Jones, right. all the big names. Yeah, Louis Big. I mean, like these were the guys, I mean, these are the guys in your book, right? I mean, they, who, who really effectively built the business, built the industry into what it became and, you know, spawned so many uh, folks who wanted to make that kind of money and who copied that strategy. So why did it go wrong? What happened that made it go south for a while? Well, I think it's a few things. Uh, one is that it got more crowded. Uh, back in the days, no one really managed that much money. And also, it was before the internet, and so it was easier to go and uh, cozy up to your favorite central banker and find out what was going on. And uh, also, there's the whole issue of interest rates. They were declining for decades, and then after the financial crisis, we just hit this, this flat line, and that makes it a lot harder to make money. What does it even mean to be macro? I mean, it, we, it's a master a of the question. universe kind of thing, but what does it really mean? It means that I'm going to look anywhere in the world and make a bet uh, on what the macroeconomic outlook is. And I would do that by betting on currencies, betting on interest rates, betting on stock market indices, not necessarily individual stocks, but on the indices, and also on commodities. So it's like a jack-of-all-trades sort of skill set. Exactly, but, but looking gotta- at like sort of um, what's going on in the world. And you, right, because you've got to basically have like a take on the world, essentially, and then figure out, I think, how to invest to your point. And it could be in, you know, the Bund, or it could be in U.S. equities, or it could be in, you know, Latin American derivatives, right? You could, you can, you can do, do so anything. Many, yeah, exactly. Okay, so how are they getting back in the, in the action? Well, uh, some people have said that they need to look a little bit farther out because uh, the rise of quantitative trading, which is another thing that's hurt them a little bit. Uh, It used to be you could jump on a trend and ride it when you saw the market switch. And now the quants have come in and they get rid of that move pretty quickly. Because they can react so quickly, right? Because they can react so quickly. And if there's something that's out of whack, they can come in immediately. Uh, and, and Does that mean the macro funds, okay, maybe they're having a good moment now, but for them to sustain that, that's going to be tricky? Cause it's it a is going to be tricky. Some people have said that maybe the only reason they did well this year is because there was a, a move in interest rates. Finally, mm-hmm. right? Finally. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. Otherwise, people are looking to other places where maybe they spent less time before, you know, Chile, Russia. 
more well, emerging markets. And as you guys have pointed out, not everyone and even some of the biggest and best known names are doing great when it comes to macro. Ray Dalio. Exactly. Uh, he's been he's struggled for almost the last 10 years. And this is the basically the you know Bridgewater being the biggest hedge funds in the in the world. Exactly. And he says, oh, we're in our range, but that range has been 4% annualized. What I find interesting, bad. though, Kathy, you say this, and yet more money, new money gets committed to hedge funds, new hedge funds open up. I mean, where are we in that tally? Because even with people questioning the fees and the fee structure and returns being down, I mean, are we still seeing hedge fund assets grow or no? Yes, they're mostly growing just because if a fund makes a few percent, you know, assets go up. Uh, I think we've, we've sort of plateaued as far as money coming in and out, so it's just kind of cruising along. But creation of new hedge funds continuing? Or? A few. A few. A few, yeah. but, but fewer. Uh, can we also talk about the story that you and I had today? We're going to talk about it with Katya uh, later, but, you know, anytime I can write a story and have a byline <laughs> with Kathy Burton, I want to talk about it. I mean, and this is also an interesting moment, right? Our world's colliding private equity and hedge funds. Uh, uh, Sixth Street Partners, which was for a while known as TPG Sixth Street, uh, they're sort of breaking up with TPG, going their separate ways. What does this tell us about sort of the credit hedge fund side of, of the equation? More opportunity? How do you read it? Well, I read it actually as uh, people looking more towards going anywhere they possibly can. Yeah, interesting. Wanting to have a sort of a wider mandate. Exactly, because I think some credit funds have been having some issues mm -hmm. and so if you can do um the sort of thing that sixth street is doing now and going you know buying farmland or doing some of the other deals i think that's what it means although uh some of those private equity firms have been dying to get into credit right right exactly i mean we were pointing out and this is something joel you and i have talked about a lot of the years we talk about a lot on this show you look at what blackstone's done you know with gso they have 142 billion dollars under management in credit alone. It's amazing. How does that compare with Bridgewater? Uh, Bridgewater is 160 total. So yeah. wow. there you go. Yeah. Knocking Pretty on close. the door. Knocking on the door. All so right. Do, can I just say, do hedge funds hate index funds? Uh, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's a fun part of your story too, right? Yeah. It's just like, let me just throw in an index yeah. fund. I'll do just fine. Yeah. I, I also, fave. there's one little detail in here that I really love, which is, you know, for some people who have really hit it, like last year, Michael Platt, 50% up, just cash in and, and closed it, right? Yeah. And it's just like, might not be able to pull that off forever and, you know, play it while you got it and then remember that it's 2 a.m. and the blackjack table won't stay off forever. <laughs> exactly. Maybe, maybe refuse that last drink that they're bringing around to you. All right. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, and Kathy Burton, hedge fund reporter for Bloomberg, also the author of Hedge Hunters. You want to know about the business? Pick it up. They say that breaking up is hard to do. Oh my God, you too. <laughs> All right, uh, you know, quick flex. Got a little scoop on the terminal today with Katja Portukanski. We did not break up. We're very dog? much together. Who gets we, the cat? Who gets the couch? I know. Seriously. Who gets the pillows? Who gets all the money? It's really <laughs> the big question. We're talking about a couple very well-known Wall Street shops. One, a pretty established one. Established one. Uh, one, a little newer. TPG on the private equity side. Sixth Street formerly known as TPG Sixth Street. Uh, they are parting company, uh, ending a 10-year relationship. Katja Portukanski is here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. All right, so remind us what's going on. 
So we have, um, obviously, the, the private equity world has like expanded into the credit world quite right. heavily. And TPG had- Can I a- quote you back to you? <laughs> that the private equity business has been blobbing, it's right? It's been blobbing. Yeah. That's, that's my word. Um, and uh, TPG had a uh, tan. Can I just say, I love that reference. <laughs> yeah. Like you say it sometimes, people are like, what? Like, no, the blob, right? Yeah, it just the goes blobbing. Ooh, the blobbing. And it just consumes everything totally. in its yeah. It's perfect. So TPG kind of had its like toe in credit through- this minority stake in a company called TPG Sixth Street Partners. Um, and that was their presence in the credit world. And basically in the last 10 years, the, it has grown from $2 billion to $33 billion. Um, it's run by this team from the Goldman Special Situations Group, which was like the hotshot team at Goldman and the prop desk that apparently they were like the only team that didn't lose money in 2008. And um, so they're they're good in credit. They're good in special sits. And now they are breaking out on their own. And uh, TPG is... Um, is going to keep a stake with them, but they're ending this partnership that kind of had the two firms staying in their lane, if you will. TPG having to stick with private equity and TPG Sixth Street Partners staying in credit. All right, so I'm going to ask both of you since yes. you both wrote the story. So why? Does somebody no longer want to stay in their lane? Is this what this is all about? What's going on? I got the sense, you know, we talked to some people around this. Uh, we got our hands on the letters that they sent to their respective uh institutional shareholders the sense i got was they both want to be in wider lanes is that what you got too yeah i think so i think you have so much money in private credit and or rather in private markets and a lot of these deals particularly like really complex deals and 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 in special situations deals where equity becomes credit credit becomes equity it's like how do you say what it is they're also in funky stuff like agriculture and infrastructure and growth and growth financing growth financing can be through debt and through equity so how do you stay in your lane without missing out on really big opportunities. And I think they both just were like, let's not. (laughs) And one example um, that sort of came up in our reporting was these guys kind of together-ish did a deal for Spotify, Mm -hmm. uh, with Spotify a couple years back. And, you know, you get into these complicated discussions like, well, who sourced the deal? And so who gets the money and who gets paid and who's running it and the investment committees and all of this overlap. And this, and I think the other contrast that we drew in our reporting was, if you look at Blackstone, you know, they have this huge credit fund, $142 billion, I believe GSO is managing at this point. It's wholly owned, it's part of the company. This was not the case, it was this partnership that was formed at a time when the world was not as complicated or candidly flooded with potential money. Precisely. And I think as long as you have like this minority share in a company, we were talking, how do you really fully go full throttle? Right. Maybe CPG has bigger ambitions to, you know, become a a big player in the space on its own. Was it a profitable partnership? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so they invested. So it invested, worked well, right? For it or, worked well from a financial perspective on on the in the aggregate. It feels like. I mean, the other notable thing that we found out through our reporting is they're basically going to take a year uh, that's sort yeah. of a cooling off period, is how one source described it to us. Where basically they're going to kind of stick to their individual knitting. But then, you know, all, all, all bets, bets are, are off, off. <laughs> and, and we'll see what happens from there. Yeah, and, T- and uh, Sixth Street Partners will no longer have TPG in its name, and TPG can no longer count Sixth Street Partners as part of its AUS. So friends, so. business friends become kind of potentially foes going <laughs> yeah. forward. Oh, yeah. Most likely. Yeah. Time, and, right? I mean, and right now they have like, and this was in the letters that we got a chance to see, you know, they have some sort of shared back office stuff, but it's more around, it, it struck me as like, they, 
they're located in some of the same places. Maybe they like share a coffee machine <laughs> and like some benefits. Say. And they're going to start to sort of parse that out uh, in the near term. But it, it, it struck us, I think, as a sign of the times to some extent, especially because we pointed out in the story, you know, $1.4 trillion in dry powder in the lot. sort of broadly growing, defined right? private equity and growing a lot more money coming in and a lot more money coming into credit. You know this better yeah. than I do, Katya. But I think your point was really smart about that. When you do a deal, right, there's just so much kind of getting mixed together. So how do you define it in one lane or one vertical, right, to yeah. some extent? No, exactly. And should note also their track record because um, you asked if it was profitable. Yeah. profitable. Sixth Street has um, annualized returns of 20% over the last 10 years, so pretty good. Yeah, pretty, <laughs> pretty good. good, pretty good. Right. All right, uh, glad to team up with Katja Porchkansky on this story. She led the way. I was just there, you know, like chirping in and chipping in when it just comes to private equity. Just crossing the T's and dotting the I's, Katya, right? Is that exactly. kind of thing? Oh, just don't forget like, to indent here. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I think that's spelled just soon. Anyway. Just soon. All right. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Dave Donabedian is with us, Chief Investment Officer at CIBC Private Wealth Management. $59 billion in assets under management on the phone in Boston. Hey, Dave, nice to have you here with us. Uh, interesting couple of days um, in terms of sell-off over the virus concerns. Rally, as we seem to focus more on earnings and some of the more positive fundamentals out there and uh, not so much on the virus. Uh, what's your thinking here um, about the trade so far? Well, I think certainly we had a, uh, you know, coming into this week, a market that was uh, probably ready for a pullback for whatever the reason, and the uh, you know, the coronavirus provided that reason. But I, I guess what strikes me the most is when I, you know, getting away from day to day, if you just look at, uh, we're about to close the first month of the year, is how much it looks like last year. Uh, even though we've had all sorts of kind of idiosyncratic news flow with the, the conflict with Iran and the coronavirus and obviously an impeachment trial, when you actually look at markets, it's the same old stuff. Stocks are outperforming bonds. U.S. stocks are outperforming international. Growth is outperforming value. Uh, tech is the leading sector. Energy is the lagging sector. So lots of news flow, but it's really just a continuation of what we saw last year. Well, Dave, and you know, we were talking about this yesterday around this table, this notion of our are people just looking for reasons to buy at this point? I mean, earnings seems to give people a lot of enthusiasm, even given what we're seeing globally with this virus. What's the mood of the market at this point? Yeah, I think the mood of, of, of the market, maybe accepting for the kind of the knee-jerk reaction to the virus in, in the last few days, I, I think has turned from kind of a, a skeptical sentiment over the last couple of months to one that feels a little bit more like a, you know, there is no alternative kind of uh, environment that um, uh, th that the equity market is relatively attractive compared to to fixed income and, and cash as, as yields head lower. And, um, you know, that's providing a, a, a very strong bid. And, you know, the, the sort of consensus view 
is relatively optimistic on the year, a bounce back in earnings, uh, decent economic growth with low inflation, and a, and a friendly Fed. And so speaking of the friendly Fed, we're going to hear from Jay Powell and co tomorrow. Uh, we I feel like we hear a lot of nothing burger commentary around this first meeting, even though it is the first meeting, even though there are things going on in the world. What do you expect to hear uh, from Chair Powell? Well, I think you're right. I think I think never has less news been expected out of an FOMC meeting. And uh, maybe that'll make it interesting because uh, even a little bit of news would, would right. get attention. Uh, I, I don't expect any change in their view on where the economy is. Uh, I wouldn't call it a victory lap, but I think they will essentially endorse their prior view that they feel like they're uh, they have the luxury of being able to sort of stand pat. Um, it'll be interesting if they make any reference to the coronavirus. I would would bet that they don't. Um, so I don't think there'll be any news on rates. I think it's early for them to really talk about balance sheet policy. I think that'll come later in the year. Uh, it'd be interesting for, for bond market technicians if they get into the, the any repo market issues. Um, that might be one, one, one thing to look at. But on the core FOMC monetary policy issues, I really have a hard time coming up with a new angle or, or twist they're going to give us. Dave, I want to ask you because, you know, Jason and I kind of kid each other that sometimes, you know, these, these when we talk macro things, it's kind of the same old stuff over and over again. And I do wonder, though, when you get together with your team every morning, you know, and check on what's going on in the world, I mean, what are the macro issues that seem to be um, most important that really, really is on, that are on everybody's mind uh, at this point? Because we could talk yeah, Fed, we could talk trade, we could talk, you know what I mean? These things come over and over again. And I really feel like the markets have got to some extent kind of used to it and immune to some of it. But but what are the things that really would make a difference here on the investment environment? Well, I would say generally speaking, it's when the, the consensus you talk about uh, proves to be wrong. And so that's that's a lot of what we do. Um, you know, the, the perception is that the, at least for the foreseeable future, you know, trade tensions are on the back burner. Um, you can come up with some scenarios why that might not actually be the case. Um, we're just talking about how everyone is so sure they kind of know that there's not going to be anything meaningful coming out of the Fed. Uh, what are the possibilities there? But probably the biggest one in terms of the thing that everybody's sure of is that um, uh, inflation is going to stay low and, and you know, that the Fed's not going to have to raise interest rates for, for a long, long time. That's sure what it looks like, but we are Mm. Uh, you know, kind of always testing that consensus because if that proves to be wrong, that's a, that's a game changer. And Dave, politics is that a potential uh, black swan here, or it, how predictable is it? Uh, it's well, it's entirely unpredictable. Yeah. Um, the, the thing there, back to the, the point about the consensus, though, that is interesting, maybe a little bit concerning, is that within the I'll call it within the investment community, there seems to be overwhelming expectations that. Uh, that, that President Trump will be reelected. I think tying it to strength of the economy mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, so that's one of those consensus views that even though the polls say something different, uh, if that's what the typical you know asset allocator or portfolio manager is thinking, um, you know you could make a strong case that, that you know President Trump is not a, a shoe-in for reelection by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. Do you agree his policies have made a difference, or is it just this continuation of a low-rate environment that continues to push people into yield and also make money pretty cheap to do other things? Um, I, I think at a macro level, uh, policies have made some difference. I, th I think certainly you just, I mean, very directly, obviously, the, the, the cut in mm -hmm. corporate tax rates 
Um, some of the, the um, deregulatory activity has been helpful to some industries, although, um, you know, the energy and financial sectors haven't exactly knocked the cover off the ball, uh, you know, performance-wise right. during the Trump presidency, even though there were it was regulatory relief. But yeah, so there there are some policy issues there that have been have been beneficial to the, the market. All right, Dave Donabedian, Chief Investment Officer for CIBC Private Wealth Management, looking after about fifty nine billion dollars. He joined us on the phone from Boston. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.